Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to the book of Romans. We'll be in Romans 5 this morning. Romans chapter 5. You know, one of the, I think, wonders of God's Word is seeing how His providential hand works throughout the Scriptures in the lives of the people in the Scriptures. Seeing how His plan unfolds, how He carries out His works and his purposes. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons that many people often fail to understand God's Word as well as they should, even fail to interpret it accurately, is that they don't understand that it truly is a narrative. There's a beginning and an end. It is revealing God's plan of redemption, right? As we see God's plan unfold and we see Him working to bring about His purposes, and so often people just open up and just expect to read something without understanding the whole. And they fail to understand or they don't understand why this happens in Genesis and this happens in Romans. They don't understand the tie and the importance of Genesis for helping us understand Romans. We want to take a look this morning and consider how God is providentially working in His Word how he's carrying out his plan, what we would call the meta narrative, the overarching story and unfolding his plan of redemption. I believe that as we do this, we, we see God's word in a more, perhaps a, a more beautiful or more meaningful way. We see the depth of his grace, the, the depth of his love displayed in his word. We see the beauty of his glory proclaimed in the scriptures. This Advent season, as you see behind me, our theme over the next few weeks is Christ the true and better. We just sang a song, Christ the true and better. We're going to consider over the next few weeks how God providentially worked in the lives of four men in particular that we just sang of to display his glory and to help us better understand who the Messiah was, to understand his purpose, his work, and what he accomplished when Christ came. We'll look at Adam today, and then next week, look at Isaac, and then Moses, and then David as we lead in to the Christmas season, all of which, or all of whom, foreshadow Jesus and his work of redemption. Our, our text today in Romans 5, we'll read this verse in a few moments, but Romans 5.14 is a significant verse, and we think about this series. In Romans 5.14, Paul wrote, "'Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses.'" even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. So, so Paul here describes Adam as a type of the one who was to come. What does that mean? What does it mean for Adam to be a type of the one who was to come? What is a type? Well, a type is a pattern, an, an image, a, a likeness, an example that prefigures or foreshadows another. And so for, for Paul to write and say Adam was a type of the one to come is, is meaning that, that Adam provides an example. He gives us a, a pattern, an image, a, a greater understanding of Christ who is the one who was to come. Now, 
it's important to know that, that you don't just kind of look over and, and flip over to in the Old Testament and just pick someone and go, okay, that person's a type of Jesus. You, you don't just manufacture anybody you want to in the Old Testament and say, okay, this person a, is a, a type for Jesus, and so we're going to understand him more over that person. Now, there's, there's two key characteristics of a type. For, for someone to be a type for Christ or for something, there's two key characteristics that we need to understand. The first one is there must be correspondence. There must be correspondence between the first and the second. They, they must correspond in, in significant ways between the type and what you might call the anti-type, the first and the second. They, there must be significant correspondence between the two to help us understand the truth in meaningful, significant ways. So the two have to correspond perhaps by looking at how they compare to one another, how they contrast with one another. They would correspond and we would look and see these things to help us better understand from the one, have a better understanding of the other. So correspondence is the first characteristic. The second characteristic is escalation. So you have correspondence and then escalation. So the first should escalate to the second. The second should expand upon, it should improve upon the first. And so to say that Christ is the true and better Adam or the true and better Isaac or true and better Moses or true and better David is to say that he is better, he escalates, he magnifies, he improves upon each of those previous men that we refer to. Adam, Isaac, Moses, David, none of them are greater than Jesus. Jesus is better than all four of those men, along with others that you can look at as types. Now, these are not the only four types from the Old Testament. They're the only four that we will study this Advent season. So this morning, we, we look and we say and we understand for the morning that Christ is the true and better Adam. That we, we would look at Adam and we would understand that Christ corresponds to Adam in a way that reveals the truth of who he is as the Messiah, and that he is better than Adam. We look at Adam's traits, his characteristics, his actions. We see that Christ is better than Adam. So before we get into Romans 5, we need to make sure that we understand for a moment and consider Genesis 1 to 3. That's why we had Chad read this morning from Genesis chapter 2 and, and Genesis 3. It's why we started with the Advent lighting and considering Adam and Eve and the garden, right? Most of you would know, and even if you're not necessarily, you wouldn't say, well, I'm a Bible scholar. Most of you in here would know that Genesis is the, is the very beginning. It's the first book of the Bible. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we have the creation of man, the creation of all things, in fact. But we read of this, specifically the creation of man, that, that God created Adam and placed him in the garden to have dominion over all of his creation. And this was a creation that God looked upon and said, it is good. And when he looked upon Adam, the creation of man, he said, it is very good. He created Eve as Adam's helper. The two were to be fruitful, to multiply as they exercised dominion. They were to live in, in perfect fellowship with God, perfect communion with God. It is a significant thing to, to understand that they were in communion. They were in fellowship with the Lord. Their relationship was as it was intended to be. They lived absolutely for God's glory. But as Chad read for us this morning, there was one instruction, right? That they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we know what they did. 
They're tempted by the serpent. They're tempted in the garden. And Adam and Eve take of the fruit of the tree. They eat of the tree, bringing sin into our world, bringing condemnation, bringing guilt, bringing shame, bringing blame, bringing death into the world. We know that in that moment when Adam and Eve chose to rebel, that that rebellion had serious consequences. And those consequences were not just for Adam and Eve, but those consequences filtered down to all of us as we all inherit the sin nature of Adam and Eve. It was through Adam that death, evil, suffering came into the world. The consequences of sin were great. And you and I experience and live through those consequences every day. So we turn now to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read this morning, beginning in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5, with the backdrop of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 behind us. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, And death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now if you're not familiar with with the book of Romans, it's perhaps one of if not one of, is perhaps the greatest theological work of the Apostle Paul as he, he gives the doctrine of the gospel here in the book of Romans. He begins and he makes the case in the book of Romans that all stand guilty before God, all have sinned, all have fallen short of his glory, all are, need, are in need of salvation, Jew and Gentile alike. He makes that case through Genesis 1, or I mean Romans 1 up through uh, Romans 3. In Romans 3, he explains that we are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone. As such, we had the example in Romans 4 of Abraham. Abraham, the supreme example that even this, this great pillar of faith, the father of the Jews, right? Even Abraham was 
believing in God, and that's what was credited to him as righteousness. It was not that he was saved by works, but he was saved by faith alone. So we come into Romans 5, and the first 11 verses of Romans 5 are an explanation of the results of justification, the results that, that come about from salvation by faith in Christ, that we have peace with God, that we are reconciled to him, that we are no longer standing at enmity with him, but we have peace with him. And we have been justified by his faith. And so then he comes into verses 12 through 14, which really provide kind of a context for his comparison and contrast of Adam and Jesus. In verse 12, we, we read a very important statement from the Apostle Paul. And we don't have time to, to dig into every statement made. This is a statement, a passage of Scripture that is very rich in truth, very rich in theological weight. And we can't get into everything. We want to focus on how, or how is Adam a type for Jesus, right? So in verses 12 through 14, the, the thing that we have to understand is, is the key truth of verse 12, that, that sin entered through Adam and sin spread to all men. So it, it entered through Adam, it spread to all men. This is the doctrine of original sin, Doctrine of original sin, that, that we are all born sinners and we have inherited, because we have inherited Adam's sin, and we sin because we are sinners. Now, some of you, some of you may be familiar with, with G.K. Chesterton and his, his writing, Orthodoxy. He, he makes a statement in there about the doctrine of original sin, about how obvious it is, how apparent he is. I just want to read you a couple things that he wrote in that, in that book. He said, modern masters of science are much impressed with the need of beginning all inquiry with a fact. The ancient masters of religion were quite equally impressed with that necessity. They began with the fact of sin, a fact as practical as potatoes, Chesterton wrote. He goes on to write, Certain new theologians, though, dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved, he says. When he says that, he's talking about empirically proved, empirical evidence that we would look and we would gather and say, here is empirical evidence right before us that the doctrine of sin is true and accurate. We can't deny it. He says that they essentially deny human sin, which they can see in the street. They're choosing ignorance. They're choosing to deny what is right in front of them. Chesterton goes on to quip and comment and in somewhat of a sarcastic, humorous tone about how crazy that is. We cannot deny sin. I don't think there's anyone in here that would deny sin. Now, what's common in our day, and if you went through my class on, from Carl Truman on The Strange New World, this will sound familiar for a moment, but you'll remember, you may know, or if you've seen some of the surveys, you may know this, that the latest survey in the United States has found that 71% of U.S. adults believe that we are born innocent. 71%. Now, that shouldn't surprise anyone, really. I mean, these are just your average American. That would make sense. I, okay, this is the one that should surprise you. 65% of U.S. evangelicals believe that you're born innocent. 65% of U.S. evangelicals would say that I'm born innocent, that I am not born with a sin nature. And the, now the question is, how can an evangelical Christian, or for that matter anyone, 
How can, how can we live and think, you know, I'm born innocent. I, I, I just am operating from a clean slate. That's how I got my start. I, there's nothing sinful in me. When, as Christians, we would read a text like Romans 5.12 that says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. How can we read that? How can we read Romans 3.23 that all have fallen short of the glory of God? Right? All have sinned. There is no one who hasn't sinned. We look at Psalm 14. We look at Romans 3, 10 through coming up to verse 23. Very clear teaching that we are sinful. We are born sinful. How does that happen? We, we, we think of two great thinkers. We think back theologically as far as Christianity goes. We look back and you go, you go all, all the way back to 4th century to Augustine. And Augustine was the first theologian to, to really articulate and to, to put on the paper the doctrine of original sin that's taught in the Scriptures. He understood that according to Scripture, according to God's revealed word, that we are sinful, that sin originates within the heart of man. Right? That was his understanding. That's what he taught. That's what he wrote about. When we come to the 18th century, and the French philosopher Rousseau contradicts this. He, he says, wait, no, 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 that's... That's not right. We're born innocent. Man is born innocent. He's born good. But it's the outside influences that come upon a man and, and change a man and tempt a man and, and lead him to sin. We talked a little bit about, about the, the kind of the comparison of their confessions. They both wrote a confession. In Augustine's confession, he confesses that, that he and some friends stole some pears and he tells about the story and, and his reflecting upon that instance where they stole pears. And, and in that instance, he, he looks and he realizes and he confesses that the reason he did that is because of the sin that resided within his own heart. It was my own sin that led me to do that. Well, Rousseau, in his confessions, tells about a time when, when he stole some asparagus, right? And asparagus and pears, his vegetables and fruits, I guess, are very tempting but, but Rousseau steals asparagus. And Rousseau's ex ex confession is what? That it was my friend's fault. He tempted me to do it. It wasn't anything in me. I was born innocent. But my friend tempted me. It's someone else. And so now we, we have this very thing going on in our world where many would look and say, actually the majority, according to the State of Theology survey, the majority of Americans, evangelical and non-believers, unbelievers, would say we're born innocent. Great, greater influence from Rousseau, perhaps, than from the truth of God's word. They would say, I'm just born innocent. Listen, when we come to Romans 5.12, what Romans 5.12 teaches us, what, what, what the importance of, of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 teach us, is not that we sit here and we blame Adam and Eve. Those bunch of no good, original parents of ours. No, it's not that we blame them and shift the blame to them. What Romans 5.12 does, it explains why we must accept the blame. Because we are sinful to our core. Our heart is the seed of sin. We have sin originating in our own hearts, and we can't blame anyone else. I can't look at you and say, I did it, or say, I did it because of you. 
I did it because of you. No, I simply can say, I did it because I am a sinner. I'm a rebel. I'm a transgressor. And I have sinned against God Almighty. I've rebelled against Him. It explains why sin originates in our hearts. is what Romans 5.12, Genesis 3 does for us. And so today, none of us can ignore this. None of us, I don't think anyone can truly ignore the presence of sin in our lives. None of us, if we're honest, can really contend and say, you know what, I'm, I'm really innocent. It's just the rest of you who have caused me problems. The reason I say that is because I would contend that every one of us, in those moments of silence, those moments of solitudes, solitude, we know the meditations of our heart. We know our thoughts. We know the sinfulness in our minds. We can't deny sin within our heart. We can't deny original sin that it originated in Adam. Now, what 12 through 14 goes on to explain is that as sin originates in Adam, it spreads to all men. Why? Because Adam is what is known or who is known as our federal head. He is our key, our primary, our ultimate representative. We see this a lot in Scripture, that that there would be one man who represents the whole. We see that when we, we think about Moses representing the people of God. We see David representing the army of God, the people of God going out to battle Goliath. We see Abraham as a representative of the head of the people of God. We even see, you can think about the high priest, right? The high priest represents the people of God as he goes in and offers atonement for the people. Adam is our federal head. He is the primary, the greatest head, and he is our greatest representative of mankind. And so when he sins, it influences all of us that we would all inherit sin. We would all be born sinful. But what Paul goes on to explain here is that, yes, that happened to Adam, but I want you to know that and remember that and be mindful of that because Christ is the true and better Adam. He is the one who did what Adam could not do. He's the one that reversed the curse that Adam brought. And so in order for you to understand who Christ is and what Christ has done, Paul says, remember what Adam did. Remember what Adam has done. Paul understands and he knows well that we have to understand sin before we understand grace. That's what Paul's doing here is he's helping us understand the sin, the consequence of sin, the condemnation of sin so that we understand the beauty and the magnificence and the glory of God's grace. So he says Adam was a type for the one who is to come. And he goes on in the next two paragraphs. You'll notice there in your copy of God's word, verses 15 to 17 is one paragraph, and then verses 18 to 21 is a second. The first paragraph, what Paul does is he contrasts Adam to Jesus. In the second paragraph, what he's going to do is compare. How are they similar? So how are they different? How are they similar? And he's going to contrast and compare and show how the two, or how Adam serves as a type for Christ. So let's look first at verses 15 to 17. Adam and Christ contrasted. John Stott, the theologian, asked this question thinking about this passage. He says, how can the Lord of glory be likened to the man of shame, the Savior to the sinner, the giver of life to the broker of death? It's a good question. 
Paul understands that question too. And so he starts out by saying they are different. There are significant differences that we need to understand and we need to see that they stand in contrast to one another. Look at verse 15. He says, but. Verse 14, he said, Adam is a type of the one to come. And then in verse 15, what does he say? But the free gift is not like the trespass. The free gift is not like the trespass. There is a significant difference. Christ serves as the anti-type for Adam. He is different. Adam helps us understand Christ, understand the work of Jesus, but there are significant differences that we have to understand. This passage, verse 15 to 17, just shouts of God's grace. As the words for grace and gift are used seven times in these few verses. Seven times. Grace, grace, gift, 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 grace, gift, grace. It's declaring God's grace. And what he does, he lists three ways. He gives us three contrasts between Jesus and Adam in this passage. If you want to just look at, look at your kind of textual cues for this, look for the word for. So in verse 15, you, say, you see for if many died. Then you get down to halfway through verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Then verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, and he goes on. Those are your three textual cues for the three ways that he's contrasting Adam with the work of Christ. So the first way is this. The first difference, the first contrast, is that Jesus' gift of grace is more abundant than Adam's act of transgression. Verse 15, Jesus' gift of grace is more abundant than Adam's act of transgression. So Jesus' perfect obedience and act of sacrifice on the cross provides grace more abundant than any condemnation that is brought through Adam. Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, upon returning to God, we have more restored to us in Christ than was ever lost in Adam. Upon returning to God, we have more restored to us in Christ than was ever lost in Adam. Right? His grace, his goodness, his blessing is more abundant, is more abundant than the transgression of Adam. It's a reminder that the, the depth of our sin would never be greater than the depth of God's mercy and grace. That's important for you and me today because if you sit here under the, the weight of guilt, if you sit here under the, the weight of sin, the, the weight of condemnation, then you need to know this Advent, this Christmas season, that God's mercy and grace is more abundant. It is more abundant. It's why we sing of, of our sins that run deep, but God's grace running deeper still. You know the song that we sing here, sometimes, sometimes you alone can rescue, where we sing this, who, O Lord, could save themselves? Their own soul could heal. Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper still. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. You alone can lift us from the grave. You came down to find us, led us out of death. To you alone belongs the highest praise. Our sin runs deep, but God's grace runs deeper still. Why? Because his grace is more abundant than the transgression of Adam. Okay? So that's the first contrast. Second contrast is in verse 16, where we read that Adam's trespass brought condemnation, but Jesus' gift brought what? Justification. 
So, so Adam's trespass brought condemnation, he writes in verse 16. So the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought what? Justification. The significant difference there. What was the effect? What was the consequence of Adam's sin? Condemnation. Man stands because of Adam condemned before God. We stand as those who are born sinful and who choose to sin. We have no excuse. We have no claim to righteousness before God Almighty. We stand before a holy God as sinners. That's all we can do. We're condemned as sinners. Oh, but, but through Christ's work, while Adam brought condemnation, Christ brings justification. So what was the consequence? What was the effect of Jesus' sacrifice? It was that sinners are justified by his blood. The great gift of God is that all who trust in him in faith are justified. All who trust in Christ declared righteous before him. By what? By the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. The price paid for our sins. Justification. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through, right? Through what? Through Adam? No. We're condemned through Adam. We're justified as a gift of his grace through what? Through who? Through Christ. Through the faith that is in, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Who he goes on to write, who is to be received by what? By faith. By faith. Christ brings justification. Adam brought condemnation. Important contrast, important difference. The third way that Paul contrasts them is in verse 17. Verse 17, that Adam's trespass ends in what? What's the ultimate end of Adam's trespass? Death, right? What's the ultimate end of Christ's grace? Life. Death versus life. Adam's trespass ends in death. Jesus' gift of grace ends in life. And you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 15, there, there's another passage where Paul uses Adam and Jesus to describe and to show that they're a type. There's a typology there, that Adam is a type for Christ. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22, he writes this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Through Adam comes death, through Christ comes life. Now the question that we have to ask out of that is what is the end that awaits you currently? What is your end? Are, are you living in Adam? Or are you living in Christ? Are you living dependent on your own works, your own merits, which fall short of the glory of God, the holy standard of God? Or are you living wholly dependent on Christ's work? Who are you depending on? Are you depending on yourself? Or are you depending on Christ? If you depend on self, the end is what? It's going to end in death. 
If you depend on Christ, what is the end? Life. (laughs) Eternal life. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Choose Christ. Trust Christ today. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ. Choose life. Adam serves as a type for the one who is to come, the type for Jesus Christ. We look and we consider Adam, we, we see one who, when tempted in the garden, sinned. What do we see in Jesus? When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, he did not sin. He did not sin. We see in Adam, our federal head, who brought inherited sin. In Jesus, we see the firstborn from the dead who brought imputed righteousness. Righteousness bestowed upon us by him. Not righteousness of our own, but righteousness given by him to us as we trust him in faith. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. In Adam, sin, his sin brought disaster. Christ's obedience brought what? It brought blessing. Adam calls man's relationship with God to be broken in Christ. In his work, his act of of sacrifice on the cross brought reconciliation between God and man. Adam's act of defiance brought judgment. Jesus' act of death brought grace. Adam's sin sent man to the grave. Jesus' resurrection promises man victory over the grave. Adam's act left man hopeless. Jesus saves man to what? A living hope. Adam brought death to us. Jesus died for us. In verses 18 to 21, Paul moves from contrasting Adam and Jesus to somewhat of a comparison. So we see in verses 15 to 17, essentially Paul saying, this is what Adam did, this is what truly should have been done. This is what the truth brings. This is what sin brings, here's what truth brings. And then in verses 18 to 21, he compares and says, you know what? This is what Adam did. Oh, what Christ does is oh, so much better. And so we see these combinations in verses 18 to 21. Again, you see some verbal clues here. You see these combinations of as and so, as and so, as and also. So if you look in verses, verse 18, you see, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. You see the same combination in verse 19, as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Then you go down to verse 21. As sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. So you see this this understanding that Christ is better. Adam's trespass had particular consequences, right? While Jesus' act of righteousness had better blessed results. D.A. Carson was commenting and teaching on the book of Hebrews. And as he looks at Hebrews, he, he comments and thinks about how in Hebrews throughout the book, the author of Hebrews writes about how Jesus is better. He's better than, than all the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Melchizedek. He's better than the priest. He, he is better. Jesus is better. And what D.A. Carson notes in there 
is he says he notes the, the rhetorical power of the word better, right? That it's one thing to say best, but if you say Jesus is better, it doesn't matter what you put before him, he's better, right? This, this was, Melchizedek was the best priest. Jesus is better. Moses was the, the best prophet, the best leader. <laughs> Jesus is better. Michael's the most powerful angel. Jesus is better. At every turn, we look and we say, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. David was a wonderful king. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. No matter what we think of, Christ is better. He's better. He's the true and better Adam. Now, here's a question. What made Jesus better than Adam? In verse 18 to 21, what is it? What does Paul keep coming back to in everything, every as and so, as and so, as and so? What is it that made Jesus better? You have Adam's transgression, his act of what? Disobedience. What is it that we see throughout here referred to for Christ? What made him better? It was his act of obedience. His act of obedience. In verse 18, we see that it's Jesus' act of righteousness had better results. In verse 19, it was the one man's obedience that had better results. In verse 21, it's that grace might also reign through what? Through righteousness. His life of righteousness, it had better results. Is what we would understand and call the active obedience of Christ. Jesus' perfect obedience to the Father. So, so the work that Christ did in coming is not just his death on the cross. It's not just his passive obedience in dying for you and me. That's not all that Christ did. But Christ actively obeyed the Father at every turn, every step of the way, every morning he woke up, every day he laid down was a day of active obedience, of righteousness to God the Father. He actively obeyed Christ through his life. And so we're not only forgiven by Christ, but his righteousness is bestowed upon us. Why? Because he actively obeyed. He was perfectly righteous. He lived and was tempted, yet was without sin because he obeyed God. It's why we, we read in, in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that we, we read that for our sake he made him righteous. He made him Sorry, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the, the divine exchange that, that we would see and we would understand that our, our sins giving to, given to him and his righteousness given to us. I was trying to flip over in, in 1 Corinthians one thirty. There we find this statement from Paul. It says, and because of him, you're in Christ Jesus who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Why? So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We boast not in our righteousness, righteousness, we boast in His. All I can boast in is my sin, and I sure don't want to do that. We boast in His righteousness. Adam's great act was disobedience, transgression. Jesus' great act was obedience, righteousness, every step of the way. The act of obedience of Christ. He is the true and better Adam. So what does this matter 
What's the point? Why should we care today in Somerset, Kentucky, that Jesus is the true and better Adam? What difference does it make? Why are we here today? It matters because Christ alone is our hope. It matters because in Christ alone we have hope for dealing with the sin, the condemnation, and death that we all face. Listen, it it doesn't matter how much cultural philosophers try to convince you in our day that morality is relative, that it's everybody else's fault, that you start with a clean slate. Ultimately, everyone sitting here today, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, I think you would agree that's wrong. You understand, you don't operate upon relative morality. You don't operate as though we just all choose what's good and what's bad and what's good for you and what's good for me. You sure don't operate that way when you drive out of here down the road, do you? You know in your heart of hearts that's not right. You know and you look around and see and observe that 100% of us sin. I mean, if we really were operating from a clean slate, you're telling me no one made it? No, we all see that all men sin outside of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who lived a sinless life. You understand, just like I understand, that we stand condemned. And I don't know what all of your needs are this Christmas. I don't know what it is that you're hoping for. I don't know what all of your challenges are. But I do know that the one thing that we all have in common is that we stand condemned as sinners before God Almighty and we all need Christ. We are all spiritually dead outside of Him, objects of wrath. We all need Christ's redeeming blood, redeeming work upon the cross. We need His righteousness imputed to us, given to us. And I also know that He is a better solution than anything else you might try to put in there. Any other way that you might try to solve the problem you live under, Christ is better. Christ is better. See, this matters because Christ is our only hope. He's our only hope. We started talking today. We started our time thinking about hope. Miss Marilyn lit the candle to remind us of the hope we have in Christ. Christ, the true and better Adam, reminds us that he indeed is our only hope this Christmas season because he came as a man in the likeness of Adam, but he was the true and better Adam that did what he could not do. He came to save the hell-bound man who was hell-bound because of what Adam did. He's our hope because he lived the perfect life. Adam could not. He's our hope because he died a death to pay for the sin that Adam brought. He's our hope because he rose again, abolishing death, so that the sons and daughters of Adam might live as well. Christ is our hope. And so the question then is why would you continue to live in sin, condemnation, and guilt 
that is brought upon us by Adam's sin and our own rebellion against God. Why would you continue to live in that when salvation and life is available through faith in Jesus Christ? Why? Why would you continue trusting in yourself? Why would you continue in under the weight of sin and condemnation? Why would you continue along that path towards death? Why would you not turn from your sins and trust Christ today? That's our prayer. As pastors, our prayer is that you would do that this Advent season, that you would trust Christ, that you would see whatever life you cling to, Jesus is better. Whatever religious games you're playing, Jesus is better. Whatever works you're trusting in, whatever person you're hoping in, Jesus is better. He is the true and better Adam. Yes, Adam's sin brought condemnation and death and guilt and shame. But Jesus brought justification, grace, and life unto us. Christ, the true and better Adam, Son of God and Son of Man, who when tempted in the garden never yielded, never sinned. He who makes the righteous many brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse, then rising, crushed the serpent's head. Let's pray.